the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's intimidating to be in this space. Uh, Now, um, I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to be a guest preacher here. um, And I had to stand in that pulpit. And that is terrifying up there. Uh, You feel the weight of the glory of centuries. So down here on the floor is a little easier on me uh, than being up there. And I don't have a sermon to deliver today, um, except insofar as if there could be such a thing as a civic sermon, as opposed to a uh, sectarian or religious sermon. Usually when I give presentations to um, uh, investors uh, or entrepreneurs or executives, I do something that's very driven by data. So we would have a big screen behind me, um, and I would show you patterns in GDP growth or contraction or market cap enhancement uh, or compression of P.E. ratios, something very driven by mathematical analysis, something very driven by uh, equations, because that's how I spend most of my day. Today, before I came down here, we were wrestling with creating equations in order to improve a portfolio design for international equity investing. But as you can see, we're not set up technologically for that. So we can't use the AV magic. So I'm going to have to use the audiovisual aids that you brought with you. Let me ask you to take out your wallets. People always worry when you say that in church. Will the ushers come forth and... Take out your wallets and or purses and um, take out a dollar bill, if you would, if you have a dollar bill. If somebody doesn't have a dollar, it's got to be a one dollar bill. Fifth, we have extras. Um, you, and if you will get them back, but you're responsible to collect them back on your own. Does everyone have a dollar bill? All right. Um, how many of you work in an industry where you're principally dealing with dollars as opposed to some other currency. How many of you are working with dollars? Almost everybody works with dollars, okay? Um, How many of you have ever taken a close, close look at a dollar bill? So we're all, one gentleman, okay, good. Um, So we're all working with dollars. It's part of our revenue stream but we don't really know much about the dollar as a physical entity. So let me, um, let me acquaint you with the thing that you've been chasing your entire professional life. Turn it over and look on the back and you will see two circles, two globes. You see those? That is called the Great Seal of the United States of America. This is a pictorial representation of who we are, or at least who we're supposed to be, as designed by the founders of the republic. So do you all see that? 
See those circles? Great the great seal has a converse and an obverse side, right? So one side is the, what the thing that's usually used to seal documents. Everything the president signs by, into law gets the, you know, the, the front side of it onto it. Um, treaties get this. Anytime we do an official act of the United States government, we say to the world, this is who we are. Or at least we're saying to the world, this is who we're supposed to be. Because I think you'll sense as we go through this that we don't actually, we're not actually these people all the time. So where does this, this come from? We just came from what room in the Duquesne Club? The Adams Room. John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin were assigned a job by the first Congress to design a seal of the United States of America. That's, that's a pretty heavy hitter team. So here's a committee. I know you have committees here, YPO. There, this committee was Ben Franklin, John Adams, Tom Jefferson. And he said, we want you as thinkers in the republic to, to put into, literally into metal, because these things are seals made out of metal, a picture of what you think we're supposed to be, of how you would describe America to somebody who isn't reading necessarily, for, so for someone who thinks visually. And they came together and they had different ideas about what it should be and they couldn't really agree. Um, uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, wanted to do the Exodus motif. He wanted to do Moses crossing the Red Sea with God, an eye of God, with glory lights coming out of the eye of God, looking down on him, and the light, like the rays of God coming down on Moses, um, and to, to represent, Franklin said, the idea that Moses, by fighting Pharaoh, was actually doing the will of God. And the motto was to be, disobedience to tyrants is obedience to God. And, uh, and Jefferson liked that. In fact, he liked it so much that he took that as his personal motto. Disobedience to tyrants is obedience to God. Um, Adams, always, as he says, a party of one, wanted to do something with Hercules, and Hercules is going to go up the tough hill or he's going to take the easy way. But the two overruled him and they sent to Congress uh, that idea. But being three big ego guys... Um, I mean, they're great men. I admire them tremendously, but there was not a shrinking violet. There was not a team player in this group. Um, they all kind of threw their own little bit in. You know, someone says uh, um, that, uh, what's the saying, that a camel is a horse built by committee? So this is a committee in which nobody really gave in. So they put a little bit of everybody's stuff in it. It was this big, complicated mess, and they sent it to Congress, and Congress said, we're going to vote to table this. Um, not because they necessarily disagreed with the theme, um, but because they just thought it was too artistically complicated. So there was a second committee, and then there was a third committee. Um, so there are all these variations on what they should create. And, um, and finally, a man named Charles Thompson, working with another man named Elias Boudinet, uh, were finally assigned the job, which led to the Great Seal of the United States. So let's look at it. Let's look at the pyramid. So you have a pyramid here. The pyramid has how many sides? Your CEOs, you can count this. Or do you need to call a CFO? Four sides, right. Um, right, four sides. All right, what does that mean? All the notes of all the people who designed any of these seals with pyramids um, said they wanted the pyramid to be very stable. 
And even though pyramids are typically three-sided architecturally, three-sided pyramids are not as stable as four-sided pyramids. So they wanted a strong pyramid that's very stable. Now, if you look very closely at the pyramid, you look real closely and you see M, D, C, C, L, X, X, V, I. Does anyone know what that adds up to? M is 1,000. D is 500, so we're at 1,500. C is 100, that's 1,600. Another C is another 100, that's 1,700. L is 50, that's 1,750. Um, and then, excuse me, uh, X, I mean, uh, yeah, 1,750. X is 10, 1,760. There's another X and another X, so we've got 1,700 and 70, and then we've got a V, which is 5, and an I, which is 1. 1,776. 1776. Does that ring a bell with anyone? All right. Now, around this time, or by now, probably something is kind of going off in your brain. Um, at least it did for me when I first started to learn about this. It's a voice in your mind, and this voice is like an AM talk radio voice, AM overnight, like crazy AM radio, right? <laughs> Aliens, you know, Illuminati, conspiracy. Right? There's a lot of crazy stuff about what all this means. You can see it on those channels where did aliens build, did Bigfoot build the pyramids or whatever. Um, the thing is, we know what these things mean. We don't have to look at some secret alien history or some secret conspiracy history. The law which created this included the notes of the people who designed it. So it's all public record. It's all hidden in plain sight. We know all these things because the historical record says what these things mean. So some people pick this up and they look at Novus Ordo Seclorum and they say that means New World Order and that this is the emblem of the whatever, whoever they think is running the world, lizard people, Jewish bankers, whatever your lunatic theory is, you think that, you know, that's the pyramid. But, but we know. We don't have to guess what any of these means. Um, it's easy. Search for it. Library of Congress has all these documents. You can look at the original handwriting of, uh, of Thomas Jefferson or the original handwriting of Ben Franklin and see what they were talking about. 1,776, which is what? The birth date of the United States of America. What makes that the birth date of the United States of America? That's the day on which we declared, we made a declaration of independence from the old world. And that declaration said we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, meaning human beings, in 1776, men meant human beings, that all human beings are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And happiness in 1776 did not mean giddiness. It didn't mean something you can get from Prozac. Um, it didn't mean an emotional state. It meant happenstance, if you look at the dictionaries of the time. Prosperity. A happy, fruitful life. Successful in all areas of your life. Life, liberty, happenstance. Uh, John Locke said, life, liberty, property. Uh, but they thought that wasn't broad enough because property isn't really enough to give you a full life. Uh, if you don't have property rights, you will not have generally a successful life, but you need more than just property. You need to do something well, 
have people see that it's done well and be rewarded for it, not just emotionally, but materially for the wealth that you create as you transform this world using your talents. And entrepreneurs do that in a purer way than almost anybody else. That's happenstance. That is the foundation of the republic. That's why the pyramid has four sides. Because that is the only stable basis on which a society like the United States of America could function. Because we didn't have anything else pulling us together. The original, uh, one of, not the original, but I think the second attempt at uh, the coat of arms here, because that's what this is. This is a coat of arms. You know, like medieval families, they have a coat of arms. This was, the, this was America. America is a family, and this is our coat of arms. Like knights have a certain coat of arms on their shield. That's what this was to be. The, the original one had different symbols of the different countries that we were from, like the rose is France and, you know, all these different symbols of the countries we're from. And the idea is we're all from these different places. We're from different ethnicities. So we're not held together by ethnicity. Japan is almost exclusively ethnically Japanese. It's a very ethnically homogenous country. Some countries are very ethnically homogenous and some are variable, but not many are variable and few are as variable as the United States of America. And I think we're the only great power which is not also an empire which has as much ethnic diversity as we do. In other words, if you're going to get a bunch of people together of different ethnicities, you don't have a lot of choices. You can get a bunch of people who are visiting, there was a gentleman here who worked in Singapore, was it, for a while? Right, so people can come and go from Singapore because it's a city-state. And most of the different ethnicities don't have permanent status, right? Um, or you can be a nation that conquers everybody else, right? There were a lot of Indians in the British Empire, but they weren't there voluntarily. So there's ethnic diversity in that sense, but a top-down political imperial state holding together ethnicities that would really rather kind of try to go, you know, work it out on their own. Or you can be a place that people come to because... There's something about this place which tells them that they can be better and do better here than they have done where they were before. And America was multi-ethnic in that last sense. So we couldn't all be together and say, we're Teutonic. We couldn't be all together and say, we're Japanese. We all are Japanese, and so there is the Japanese way. We couldn't be united by ethnicity because there's too many ethnicities. We had to be united by something else. What is the something else? It is what we said to the world in MDCC, MDLCC, what, what, uh, v, uh, XXIV. What we said to the world is we have certain foundational principles and that's what makes us who we are. And if we don't follow these principles, we're not who we are anymore. And if we follow these principles, and three or four hundred years, years from now, America is 80% different ethnicities. Or probably now more like 70% different ethnicities than the original, almost everybody from England and maybe from Germany that we were back then. But we still follow the same principles, then we're still the United States of America. That makes sense? Are you tracking with me so far? All right. Um, so as we look closer, we see that there are how many layers of this pyramid? You can guess at a number. 13. So what's the 13? 13 original colonies. There's something wrong with this pyramid. Can anyone see the problem with this pyramid? It's not finished. You notice that the pyramid is incomplete? It has a stable base. 
It has a stable base archi architecturally, four sides. It has a stable base intellectually, the principles of 1776. There are 13 colonies, but it, it, it's, there's room to grow here beyond 13 colonies. But there's also room to grow in other ways. Okay, so we have to look above the incomplete pyramid and see what's above. We see an eye. Again, I want you to suppress that AM, nighttime, radio, internet, lizard people, Illuminati, conspiracy stuff, um, which gets tied up with Masons, right? The Masons run the world. I, you know, my grandfather was a Mason. He didn't run the world. Uh, so, and by the way, the Masons didn't, pu didn't put the eye in a pyramid. Now, the eye is in a pyramid that is complete. It's not an incomplete pyramid. This is a perfect pyramid. Whose eye do you think that is? It's God's eye. So what do eyes do? Eyes watch. And they evaluate. And then we have this saying, Anuit Keptis. Anuit Keptis. You know what an annuity is? Right? A, a flow of money. And so you, an annuity is, you like it. You smile when you get an annuity. Right? When you set up your business in such a way that that profit just keeps flowing, that's, a, yeah, that's pretty nice. Well, Anuit means he smiled. What did he smile at? Our ception. We in English we say inception, but ception. He smiled at our inception. He liked the beginning. That's what the founding fathers believed. They believed that God. There's all sorts of literature about God's what they called signal provi providences, just little things around here, where George Washington was running into battle, the tallest man in the army at the front of the army, riding towards French forces. And he comes out of that battle and he shakes his robe and musket balls are falling out of his robe over and over again, just missed. His body just missed by what would be fatal, uh, fa fatal wounds. And George Washington believed, and many other people believed, that God was smiling on our undertaking, that he wasn't neutral in the question of whether or not this new, this novos order seclorum, new order of the ages, would happen. They say, they, we, we can believe this or not believe this, but, but what you must believe is that they believed it because we have historical record. You can disagree with them or agree with them, but they think that God wanted a country that wasn't based on ethnicity, that he wanted a country based on the equal dignity of every human being. They also knew they were falling short of that with the Declaration and the Constitution which they created. They knew that they weren't living up to it because there were people of African descent and there were women um, and they were varying had varying degrees of second-class citizen status or in the case of African slaves, no citizen status whatsoever. Animal status, maybe less than that. So they knew they weren't living up to it. That's why the pyramid isn't completed. That's why he smiles on our inception. But he doesn't smile on the end because what is the end going to be? So the picture here is we've created a society on a stable foundation, not perfect, imperfect, not as big as it will be geographically, not as good as it should be morally. He likes the beginning. Now he's watching to say, okay, what's next? What are you going to do about the people that I made who you don't treat like people? Because the eye, historically, is the evaluator. If you ever read the book of Genesis, I recommend it. It's a very good book. Um, if you ever read the book of Genesis, God looks at things and says, this is good. 
makes, makes man in his image and say, this is good. And then brings man and woman together and says, Motov, this is very good. Looking and evaluating are connected to one another. So America is always being evaluated. In that sense, good start, America. Now what are you going to do with it? This novo soto seclorum, this new way of creating a society. Benjamin Franklin said, people have set up societies before from scratch, but they always did it by invading. I invade your country and I make you keep my laws. So I create a nation. But no society ever had the ability to make itself from the bottom up. This is the first opportunity this was given. Don't blow it because he's watching. Okay, that's half of the, um, of the Great Seal of the United States. Um, the other half, which is what gets on the documents, this is what's stamped, um, is... Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right. You want, it, you want a little bit on the second part of the Great Seal of the United States of America? Okay. Who is the eagle? That's the United States. What's the eagle doing? Benjamin Franklin said the eagle should be rising. But he didn't want it to be an eagle. He wanted it to be a turkey. And that, that sounds funny to us because, you know, turkey is a... Uh, I'm kind of sympathetic, actually. Um, he, he, he didn't want us to be as warlike as we were. There's this long debate in American history about how do we become a great nation. George Washington said, let's basically stay out of the world wars. Uh, let's have an empire of commerce. We'll build stuff and sell it to them. They'll build stuff and sell it to us. We'll get to be friends. And our armies will stay here to defend us. And that was pretty much what everybody said for basically almost every, all the founding fathers for, um, for that generation. There were a few who wanted to get involved in the French versus English war, but George Washington said, no, none of our business. Washington said, interest tempered by justice. We get involved in a war when we've got an interest and when our cause is just. If we have an interest but our cause isn't just, no war. If we have uh, a just cause, but no interest, in other words, hey, let's make the world safe for democracy. Let's go out and get rid of every dictatorship and, and send troops there to you know, do nation building. The Washington test says, no, we've got to have an interest there. Interest and justice, both things. And if the, that was the standard, I think there are some wars we might have skipped. Um, Vietnam War, maybe the Iraq War even. That's, we can debate about that. Um, but... Um, John Quincy Adams, son of the man who started, you know, this, uh, whose room we were just in, said, America does not go forth in the world looking for monsters to slay. So, so Franklin didn't get his turkey. We got an eagle, which is a little bit warlike. But which way is the eagle facing? Can you see which way? The, the eagle's facing towards his dexter, it says in the notes, his right hand. That's approval. 
Um, in classical literature, all the way back, the right hand is dextrose. The left hand is anyone know what the Latin for the father? You're not allowed to answer. The Latin for left hand. Left hand. I said you're not allowed to answer. <laughs> Sinister. I'm not saying left-handed people are evil. Um, you know, I've got left-handed kids um, who are evil. No, uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but right hand tends to be approval. So this eagle has something in each talon. What does the what does the eagle have in the right hand? Right talon. Come on, speak up. Olive branches. What does an olive branch symbolize? Peace. What does the eagle have in the left talon? Arrows. What does the arrow symbolize? War. Unpeace. What, what does the eagle prefer? Peace. So the eagle prefers the olive branch, but if the eagle has to, is forced to, when both interest and justice require it, defense becomes necessary. There's a, there's a carpet that has this in the, in the White House, um, and the policy is if America is at war, the eagle's looking to the left, and if America's not at war, the eagle's looking at the right. Um, and that's a pretty good policy, because war shouldn't be something we're constantly at. In the American tradition, a war is something you go and you win and you come home. You don't have constant low, you know, war going on all the time. Okay, so that's, so the, the eagle has, um, has a breastplate. The breastplate, now this originally had colors, obviously, and we know what the stripes would be, red and white, and then blue on the top. So red, white, and blue symbolized what to these people? See, we know what red, white, and blue symbolizes to us, right? Red, white, and blue is America. But this, America just got started. They couldn't say, you know, we should make it red, white, and blue because it's, we're America after all. They're making America. So what's red, white, and blue to them? Red, white, and blue is chivalry, knights. Knights, that part of the ceremony is the red, the, the white is the purity of the cause, the red is the willingness to die for a just cause. The blue is the sky is blue and from heaven is where justice comes down. So it is, I will be pure in my motives, I will be willing to die for something, but that something must be just. It must be blue. So when we're looking, when we see red, white, and blue and Uncle Sam, you know, it's like, that's an American association for us, but the, for the first generation of Americans, it was a medieval knight. This was a modern knight society. Early emblems of the, of the United States when we were rebelling against England would have a scroll, and the scroll was the Magna Carta from the 13th century. Heroic heraldry, that's what all this is. The person who designed this was a herald designer. This is a medieval craft. So they saw themselves to some degree as in continuity with the medieval past and its heroism, its purity of purpose, its moral uplink, but different. Liberty rather than a top-down medieval society. A technologically driven society. John Adams said, I study war so that my son can study commerce, so that his son can study literature. And you're the sons who study commerce and daughters. Because the eagle would rather look at the olive branch. But it's still heroism. It's still heroism. You know, I recently, um, I'll end with this, I recently um, interviewed um, a friend of mine, Deirdre McCloskey from University of Illinois at Chicago. 
brilliant scholar, um, lovely human being. And Deirdre, um, since 1992, has studied this question. What is it about this country, and to some degree the United Kingdom, and before that Holland, which caused a growth in the standard of living and in prosperity, which was beyond what anybody in the world for thousands of years before could ever even dream was possible, except maybe prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel. What caused us to go from $3 a day to $300 a day in a standard of living? What caused a 10,000% increase in the standard of living about 300, over the past 300 years? What moved us from a society in which 50% of children died before they were one year old and another 50% died before they were 15 to a society where it is a tragedy, where every family had lost children? Almost. To a society where it is rare and horrifying when someone in our network of friends loses a child. What got us from here to there? And Deirdre, I don't know whether to say he or she, I'll just say my friend Deirdre. Deirdre um, looked at all the traditional causes for this. You know, uh, that oh, we exploited the third world, you know, and so that's we took their, you know, England took their money. And she said, no, impossible because they didn't have wealth. You can't get rich stealing from poor people. There simply wasn't enough oomph, enough of an order of magnitude to take, from, uh, to take from China or even India. There wasn't enough accumulated wealth to build that economic takeoff on imperial exploitation. Yes, there was imperial exploitation, but it wasn't big enough to be the effect. Accumulation of capital, no. Accumulation of capital doesn't get you a 10,000% increase. That's why we're not getting 10,000% increases now, even though we've got a lot more capital than we ever did before. What is it? Population, ethnicity? No. Because, you know, the ethnicity of England is the same as the ethnicity, really, of Scotland and Ireland. I know I'm Irish, so we're going to say, no, completely different ethnicity. No. Racially, we're the same. And Ireland starved so much that my ancestors came here while England became wealthy because there was something different about the societies. It's not ethnicity. North Korea and South Korea have the same ethnicity. Haiti, Dominican Republic, same ethnicity. And let's be honest, East Bank of the Jordan River and West Bank of the Jordan River, Jews and Arabs are cousins. Very different economic picture, same ethnicity. Arabic is almost like, when my Arab friends speak, I, I read a little Hebrew and I can almost understand what they say. You know, pretty similar, very similar ethnicity. So it's not ethnicity. So what is it? Here's what McCloskey found. What, something happened in England. First, something happened in Holland, and then it moved to England when Holland basically invaded England and installed a Dutch king. We don't really know about that, but this is what happened. James II, Winston Churchill's great-great-great-great-grandfather, helped install a Dutch king in England, um, and uh, William of Orange, and he brought those values, and then those values came across the pond in the United States. Something happened, and it happened in the religious sphere, but really initially in the literary sphere. And what happened is... There was a shift in culture where the opinion-molding institutions, not movies then, plays, essays, literature, began to treat the entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial calling, as a heroic calling. In the Middle Ages, a priest is a hero, a soldier is a hero, 
right? So um, a lord is a hero. So the first son becomes the lord of the manor. The second son becomes a clergyman. The third son becomes a soldier. And the fourth son, I don't know, maybe commerce. Bottom, Aristotle had a great chain of being. At the top is the philosopher, in the middle is the leader, and at the bottom is the technician, the techne, the entrepreneur, the, the, um, the merchant. And the medieval world bought that idea. Even though the medieval world was allegedly Christian, and in Christian theology, the king of the universe comes down as a what? Philosopher, king, worker, a techne, tecton, um, essentially an entrepreneur. Joseph and Sons, building construction. Came from the bottom of, the, of, of Aristotle's social sphere. That's something, this isn't a religious speech, so we'll just put that off on the side. Uh, this isn't a sermon, but it's just something for you to think about while you're in these, in these halls. And so when that happened, when all of a sudden the merchant, the inventor, the innovator, the financier, the risk taker, who was bettering things here on earth, but at least we have the story of heaven, so it'll be good after that, and a generation of still Christian thinkers said, yes, heaven is wonderful, but we're not in heaven yet. We're on earth, and our job is to improve it here. And merchants and innovators and inventors and applied scientists improve life here. And that is heroic. Those are the nights of the 17 and 1800s. And here in America, merchants were reading that stuff. And they were acting this way. And the Puritan ministers were saying, hold on, what are you doing? Um, you're engaging in interest rate transactions, which is forbidden according to Aristotle, and you're making too much money, and your parties are too lavish, and we think you're mixing with foreigners too much. This is all ungodly stuff. And so they dragged them before church courts to excommunicate them. But when you get excommunicated, it's a trial like any other trial, and you get to offer your defense. And all these merchants offer their defense. They say, but, you know, not here you say father, but pastor. Here's how I've improved the lives of people. Yes, but you didn't follow the just price. Well, I had to raise my prices because there was a storm and it sunk the boat. Well, that's an act of God. Deal with it. Well, no. Um, this, I would be out of business and we would have no boats if I weren't able to have a fluctuation in price to compensate myself for the risk. That's how interesting. And, they, and these merchants are offering a defense and in it they're explaining how markets work. And they get excommunicated anyway. But... It rolls around in the thought of that first generation of American pastors. And the second generation, that's Cotton Mather, the second generation, Increase Mather, they start saying, you know, I think I understand what these merchants are saying. I think it's okay to use these innovative financial products. I think it's okay to deal with foreigners. I, we, we can Christianize the foreigners. And we can learn things from them. Maybe this is all right. And a revolution takes place in the, sixth, in the late 1600s and early 1700s where the clergy listen to the laity. They listen to the merchants and they learn from them. They don't do whatever you say. If the merchant's cheating, the clergy says, cheating is cheating. You can't cheat your customers. You can't steal. But the merchants say, yes, but it's not stealing to charge an interest rate commensurate with the amount of risk. It's not stealing to invent a new process which lowers the price of something so more people can get it even though my competitor now is out of business. That's not stealing. That's caring for God's children. And this revolution occurs over the next century and, the, and, it, and it comes, flows into the second great awakening and it's where this comes from. It starts when Benjamin Franklin is a young man and it gets written down here when he's a very old man. And it becomes the reason why you can do what you do. It becomes the reason why Pittsburgh 
named after William Pitt, someone in this tradition in British society, in that tradition that was what's called the Whig tradition that sided with the Dutch king that said commerce, not empire, um, that, that, was, that said slavery not only is immoral, but it's a bad way to organize an economy. It will hold us back. That, that old debate, empire and slavery on one hand, commerce on the other. Marxists say it's all the same thing. No, they were, they were in conflict with one another. The dismal science was called the dismal science by the nobility of England because the, eco the economists of the day said you should end slavery. Well, don't, don't tell me what to do morally. And the economists said, forget morality. Slavery is holding our society back. And the nobility said, well, if we don't have slaves, who do I live off of so I can write poetry all day? And they said, better, better pe people who are better at writing poetry will write poetry if you go to work. And so they called it the dismal science. Economics is the dismal science because they won't be able to just sit around like in an Austin novel and compose bad poetry all the time. When you do your thing, don't do your thing wondering if it's a good thing to do or not. Because if it's done honestly and with excellence, it is a good thing. It is a good thing to build housing. It is a good thing to create new technological solutions to make software more efficient. It's a good thing to develop commercial property. It is a good thing to better this world. It's not all there is. This building reminds us that there's something beyond that, that ultimately that property will not bring happiness. It's not all good things, but it's a good thing. It's heroic. And don't let anyone tell you it isn't. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts and improve our national conversation by sharing it with some friends. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.